0: Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features expert answers to clinician questions on available and emerging therapeutic strategies for patients with either early or late relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled New Therapeutic Developments for Relapsed Refractory Multiple Myeloma. During this podcast, Professor Jesus San Miguel and Dr. Paula Rodriguez-Otero, both from the Universidad de Navarra in Spain, and Professor Katja Weisel from University Medical Center Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany will answer questions asked by the audience during a live CCO webinar. The questions cover such important topics as key findings from the DREAM-2 trial of Belantamab mafidotin managing ocular toxicity associated with blantamab mafidotin, how responses to idacabtogene cell differ across different patient populations, and selecting therapy for lenalidomide refractory disease at first relapse. For more information on Professor San Miguel, Dr. Rodriguez Otero, and Professor Weisel, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic. First question I see here is,
1: in, uh, I believe it's Karma, what is relationship between HR sideo RISS, and or triple class refractory st- status and depth of response?
2: Okay, so I can take that question. Uh, so uh, in the first plot of the Karma uh, trial, BFS benefit and overall response rate was shown across all the different subgroups. It is true that a revised ISS-3 patients did a little bit uh, less good and this data is now being analysed in depth and probably in the future we will have more answers to these questions. But overall, all patients benefit, but it's true that revised ISS-3 uh, seems to do a little bit worse.
3: Okay, if I can add to this comment of Dr. Rodriguez, I can say that is uh, as you have seen, there is a discrepancy between the response rate in high-risk genetics and revised ISS3 because according to the FASA ratio, the, uh, the, uh, to have high-risk genetics is not influencing uh, negatively the uh, response with uh, BB2121. By contrast, the revised ISS3 uh, was apparently as a negative factor. Then we have looked in detail for this discrepancy, and what we had found is that this was not also influenced by LDH, and to a surprise, it was influenced by beta-2 microglobulin, something difficult uh, to explain, uh, and, uh, and probably need a larger number of patients just to understand this, because... The, the big surprise is that the response rate was equally uh, good, effective, both in patients with high-risk cytogenetic, extramedullary disease, and also, very important, patients over the age of uh, 65, which indicate that CAR-T therapy can be also used in patients that don't qualify, for instance, for autologous transplant.
4: Imagine you have all the combinations available. What would you choose in the first relapse in a LEN refractory patient fit enough to receive a triplet?
3: Okay. If a patient is LEN refractory and is not receiving a triplet, probably my first option will be KD, carfilzomib, dexamethasone. If I have the opportunity to use a triplet, I will use pomalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone nowadays, probably combination with carfilzomib and immunoclonal antibody or an immune, uh, a proteasome inhibitor uh, like carfilzomib plus an immunomodulatory drug is going to be also effective in this setting.
4: Thank you. I have a question for Dr. Rodriguez um, called CAR T-cell therapy. Is CAR-T cell therapy likely to move to frontline over time? Where do you see it fitting into the algorithm over the long term?
2: Thank you for the question. So, yes, I mean, all the development of these therapies is moving forward very quickly. And now we have already uh, trials recruiting patients in a randomized fashion in earlier uh, relapse. And yes, there will be uh, trials with uh, BCMA CAR-T uh, in the setting of frontline therapy. And I can also see a, a comparison between CAR-T and autologous stem cell transplant. So yes, I think that this is the, how the field is moving forward. Thank you, Dr.
4: Rodrigue. And now i want on for Professor Weisel. similar kind of question, but now it's about melphaline and selexinol. Do you see these regimens moving up the algorithm, for instance, to the third line or perhaps after RVD failure?
1: Yeah, for Melflophan, I think it's too early um, to really uh, see here um, it clearly moving forward. However, for Selenix, so we saw just at the recent ASCO and EHA meetings, the a result of the um, <clears throat> randomized Boston trial investigating Selinexor in combination with Bortezomib and Dexamethasone versus Bortezomib and Dexamethasone alone in first to third relapse, where the triplet combination showed a clear significance in favor for the Selinexor Bortezomib arm in the primary endpoint in progression-free survival. And, um, and we also saw that the once-weekly administration and the once-weekly Bordosumab schedule seem to be very feasible to use in this patient population. With, as we just heard, the emerging generation of lenalidomide refractory patients coming out of first-line treatment, this triplet will be an important um, uh, alternative in um, earlier relapse treatment Especially for lenalidomide refractory or and or monoclonal NECD thirty eight refractory myeloma patients.
4: Thank you, Professor Weisel. Doctor Rodrigue, what is the most relevant piece of information
2: of the updated DREAM two data? Okay. So for me, is duration of response. So even though uh, overall response rate is not very high, it's only around 30% of the patients, uh, which for me is key is that responses are durable and median duration of response in the lower dose, that is the, the dose that has been selected based on the safety efficacy balance uh, is almost is uh, 11 months, which is Long, So, I think that this is the most relevant piece of information for me.
3: Justine, here is Dr. San Miguel. May I ask a question to Dr. Rodriguez uh, directly?
4: Yes, of course you okay. may. Okay. No,
3: uh, Paula, you, you have a lot of experience with Belantamab. and one of the main uh, issues is the ocular toxicity. How severe is this ocular toxicity? Uh, and how can we either prevent or manage more appropriately?
2: Okay, so this is a very difficult question, but I will do my best. So, uh, it's very frequent, so ocular findings in the ophthalmological exams uh, happens in two thirds of the patients, so this is very frequent. So, uh, patients need to go to the ophthalmologist for regular uh, revision, uh, so the mechanism, so how it is produced. So you, 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 the patient will have like a, a formation of cysts that they start in the periphery of the cornea, and in some patients, those cysts will move to the center of the cornea, and then the patient will suffer from a decreased visual acuity or other symptoms. So. So it is important to see those cases that will be seen in an ophthalmological exam. So if those cases appear and they are relevant, so probably the best way to go is to those decrease or those delay in order to prevent those cases to get uh, worse. Um, so there is a discrepancy between ocular findings and patient reported symptoms. So patient reported symptoms is around 30% when ocular findings happen in two-thirds of the patients. So this needs to be taken into account because some, it's, it's not something that goes uh, in parallel. And also it is important to note that dry eye or other uh, ocular problems may um, have play a role in this ocular toxicity. So we need to make... Also, the differential diagnosis with the help of the ophthalmologist, if those symptoms that the patient refer are related to dry eye or are related to the keratopathy of Belanthamab. The good news is that those findings, ophthalmologists are now very aware and we need to educate uh, them to, to be aware of this finding. But the good news is that if we dose decrease or dose delay, respondents, response response, a stay, so responses are stable and the patient is not progressing. So we learned from the dream to a study that despite the patient's dose decrease or dose delay, responses were maintained. So this is also an important uh, piece of information because if we have these ocular findings or so the, be- the best way to go is to dose decrease or dose delay, um, review the patient in close interaction with the ophthalmologist, some patients never have this uh, ocular toxicity. So patients with um, glaucoma or other uh, dry eye, uh, diabetes, or other ocular problems are at more risk. So those patients need to be followed more carefully. Uh, and I think that is all.
3: Okay. Then, then pa- pa- Paola, can I summarize by saying that if I have a pa- patients need to have regular uh, yeah, especially the for the hormones. first
2: four four months.
3: Okay, and as soon as the patient, in a responding patient, has in the periphery uh, uh, an evident damage, probably to uh, elapse the treatment, to delay the treatment, since the responses are durable, will be a very attractive possibility.
2: Yes, so they are working in a new classification of the ocular finding with those cases. And the uh, acu- uh, visual acuity, but yes, I mean those patients need to be followed, and probably yes, to hold the dose and delay the next dose will be the best way to go in order to prevent further damage in the cornea.
3: Because Kaja, this is uh, this is how we handle the uh, the peripheral neuropathy in myeloma, and we learn a lot through Absolutely. delay the I dose. I
1: think we had some challenges in the past. <laughs> We had the peripheral neuropathy with thalidomide and borizumab. We had to learn about handling hypertension and potentially also fluid overload in carfilzumab um, treatments. Um, and we had a long discussion about uh, secondary primary malignancies and lenalidomide-based um, treatments. So now we have a new challenge. We have the CRS, this Cousin in bites and cars. I think um, from my experience, I can support what Paula said. We learned a lot together with our ophthalmologists, and um, I see that we gain a routine of supportive care here, which makes it much easier to um, to keep patients now on this uh, important drug. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Professor San Miguel, Dr. Rodriguez-Otero, and Professor Weisel. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, New Therapeutic Developments for Relapsed Refractory Multiple Myeloma, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.